Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, go to johnwarrenmedia.com. Our sponsor is CFS Financial. You can learn more about CFS Financial at our website, johnwarrenmedia.com. CFS Financial is a full-service consulting firm focusing on debt resolution, commercial debt resolution, and strategic planning, other financial matters. Go to johnwarrenmedia.com, look at the CFS Financial tab, and contact us through our contact form there. Well, it is good to be with you after we took a break in our three-part series on the economy with my friend Josh Shepard so that you could learn of his good work. And I'm grateful for the time that he spent with us last week. This week, we continue our three-part series on the economy, and we have with us our secret weapon once again, my wife, Connie Warren. It is good to have you with us. Oh, thank you for having me back. It's good to be back. All right. So the proper introduction is she has her master's degree in nursing administration. She spent years in a hospital system called Florida Hospital and others before that with very responsible positions in women's and children's medicine and nursing management. So she semi-retired. She still has a current nursing license, but semi-retired to participate in the education of our daughter years ago. And, And so in our third episode, not this one, but our third episode next week on The Economy, Connie is going to talk about some very practical ways that we employ some of the truths that we're going to talk about today with respect to really this question. We're going to answer this, try to answer this question today, and we'll, we'll cover a lot of ground. But how is a Christian to view the economy in a very practical day-to-day way? We don't often do that here on Relentless Truth. We talk about big ideas and how they impact our lives We've had some great interviews, but now we're at about episode number 25, and we're going to go practical. And so it's good to have Connie with us, and we'll sort of pick her brain throughout this this process. But we're going to start with this, something you've heard me say before, economics defined is, is simply stewardship or house management. The, there's a Greek word, oikonomos, that where we get the our, our modern word economics from that word. And that, that word is actually used by the Apostle Paul and by Peter in the New Testament four or five times. So this study of economics is, is actually consistent in several respects with Scripture. Now, this word years ago, you will remember, we had back in high school, we had a course called Home Economics. Did you ever take a course called Home Economics? I certainly did. That's where I learned how to sew. I did not. Uh, Nor did I take shop or any of those other courses because 
I had more rigorous ambitions, let's say it that way, that were given to me by my parents. But I was aware of those classes, and I've always been envious of your ability to do a number of things like cooking and sewing and all of those things that, that, you know, we'll probably touch on next week. But this word economics was really a reference to, as a guy named Alfred Marshall said, he called it a study of mankind in the ordinary business of life. Now, what we've done as a society is we've kind of made it scary. So we call it the economy or the study of economics we think of as this discipline, this sophisticated, difficult discipline, and it has become that. But I'll tell you something interesting. Even even once we got past home economics, past that period, and I don't know whether we're past it or not. I don't think we offer that in schools anymore, do we? We don't. Yeah, that's a shame. But once we got past that, we started moving this discipline around in our universities. It was originally, and by originally, I mean 40 years or more ago, it was housed in the history department of most universities. Then it made its way into the school of business and in some cases now or the college of business depending on the size of the institution and in some cases now economics is a separate discipline or a sub-discipline associated with other disciplines and so we're not going to spend a lot of time on the academic implications of this topic but our focus today is it's a very practical thing that we're going to be discussing in the context of scripture for the Christian. So economics is a social science. Everyone agrees. It identifies principles, which are sometimes called laws, which can be kind of frustrating because they've changed over the years. There are many things that happen now in this economy that would have been considered unpredictable. You know, we're in the post-COVID economy, which is kind of different. Economists also often disagree. So when one studies this discipline, we have to be ready for conflicting views. And I I often tell my students that, yes, these are smart people who have these views, but they're often wrong. And history sort of proves that over time. One of the challenges about economics that we'll, we'll touch on today is this unpredictable human behavior. It measures, often the economist does, the study of economics, unpredictable behavior by humans. And the assumptions have to change over time. So if you study economics in a historical context, it can be a little confusing. One of the things, one of the principles that I want to talk about today is is really this notion of how should a Christian view economics. And if I could say it more plainly, what are God's economics? What what does economics look like per scripture? And this is where this can be difficult for us to talk about because, and I want you to jump in here, because God does supply all that we need. He the study of economics is sometimes referenced as as the the study of the use of scarce resources. But God has promised that he supplies all that we need, and yet people have to decide how to use scarce resources in economics. But economics from God's viewpoint, if you can imagine that, is his economy is one of abundance. And so 
reconciling that God is a God of abundance without embracing the prosperity gospel, and we'll talk about that in a moment, and that he supplies what we need, and yet we can also experience scarcity, sounds really complicated to me, don't you think? I do. It reminds me a little bit, I'm, I'm, I, I go back to when we first got married 41 years ago, and you were still in school, and I was working for $5.35 an hour, and we lived, As a nurse. As a nurse. As a registered as a nurse. As a registered nurse, right. And that and was you, actually- And you made $5.30? I didn't know that. $5.35 an hour. I didn't That's remember what I that. made. Yep. Wow. And I think how the Lord just supplied everything that we needed. I mean, we <laughs> didn't have much <laughs> at all in material wealth. But we never were hungry. We always could fill up our tanks with gas. It's good to go back and think about that. I think it's the difference between sufficiency and and living sufficiently and lavishly and versus needs and wants. And we struggle with that in America because we're such a materialistic society. Yeah, that's right. And I think those are the kinds of references that we're going to do during this conversation because we want to make this very practical. There's a section in scripture, and it's interesting. I, I don't know whether this is, is accurate or not, but I've read where a commentator said that during the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament, as recorded in the New Testament, he talks more about the economy, more about money, more about material resources than any other topic other than the kingdom of God. Now, that I don't know how that person did the math, but suffice it to say that the New Testament, uh, that scripture in general talks an awful lot about the economy. Well, one, one place where we can get some real practical information is from the Sermon on the Mount. And, and this section is very familiar. I reference it a lot. I reference a couple of sections in the book of Romans a lot as well. But there's this admonition And I'm just going to read this. It's from Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19. We're not going to pause and and preach a sermon here, but but it's important, I think, for us to know Jesus's words on material resources and how to view them. It says in verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then he talks about the eye being the lamp of the body, and he he says, so if, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And then listen to verse 24. This is Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, when I read those words, the question I think that I have to ask myself, is God, is Jesus Christ more important to me than money. And I think I have to ask myself, and and my initial knee-jerk reaction is, well, of course he is, right? Right. And yet, we struggle with this, 
And so I want to talk about when we get to the end of our topic today, I want to talk about some very practical tests that we can administer to ourselves, some very practical things that we can do to ensure that we have the right perspective about money. But I want to go on, and it's really interesting how Jesus transitions here to a talk really about the proper perspective. And here's what he says, proper perspective with respect to money. And and he immediately goes into a discussion, a commandment, a command, an imperative that says, do not be anxious. He says in verse 25, so this must be connected to this, this previous admonition. You cannot serve God and money, this declaration. You cannot serve God and money. And then he says in verse 25, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, Even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? See, he says it again. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek... First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So this lesson in the Sermon on the Mount ties anxiety with having a proper view of who God is and giving him proper priority. So it seems to imply, it seems to say rather clearly to me that an improper focus on money, the service of money makes us anxious. Yeah. And I'm just reminded of, I think because when we don't believe we'll have enough, that drives our fear. So we continue to want to strive to make more money I think of Hebrews 13:5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And I think that key word contentment is part of what we have to learn. And Paul tells us, the wonderful thing, Paul tells us that we can learn to be content, but learning takes work, hard work. And that's what I think sometimes we lack. We're not willing to put the hard work in to learn contentment in God's promises. Well, I think that's right. In verse 6 there, after Hebrews 13, 5 says, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Usually there's a fear, and I see it in my own life, if I'm obsessing over material things, and so I've got to admit right now that I am a Pharisee, I am a hypocrite for even even taking on this topic because my tendency in my flesh 
is to try to grab life by the throat and worry and outwork the situation and take control myself. Now, did I just criticize hard work? No, absolutely not. Uh, getting up early in the morning? No. Planning well? Absolutely not. Those are all good things. But the difference is a focus on my own self-reliant self-sufficiency versus God's sufficiency. And it just happens that money and the economy, all of these related topics are sort of litmus tests, I think. They're good indicators, rather, of where our heart is and whether we're truly trusting God or not. And I, I want us in our next episode to talk about you know ways that we've done that in our lives, very imperfectly, very sinfully, very imperfectly, but we've learned some valuable lessons that I think will benefit the listener. I agree. And I think you know, I think one of the main things to get across is if you don't study God's word, if you don't learn God's word and his promises, it is hard not to be anxious in this world. So I think the key to all of this and everything in life is daily studying God's word, hiding it in your heart, as the Bible tells us to do. So that when you get in these hard situations and you feel anxious and stressed, God's promises can be brought to your mind to to give you peace and comfort. And as you were saying that, in addition to that section in Matthew 6, and maybe I'll just, I'll just rifle through these for future reference, Psalm 37 verse 25 says, I've been young and, and now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 13, we just talked about. It's important, I think, for us to make a distinction here, and that is Christians do face scarcity and poverty and adversity for a time, for a season, sometimes uh, acutely. But God promises to meet our needs according to his riches. And so this distills in my mind, and I think scripture backs me up on this, to how we see God. Do we know God and do we see him clearly? I am so encouraged, I'm so impressed by David. When you get to about a third of the way into the Psalms, you can see that David knows God and his character and that is how he's able to rely on him. There are even passages that talk about our giving coming from our response, our, our being generous with our lives comes from our response to the gospel. It is because he first loved us that we even are able to respond and live generous lives that are properly configured. Yeah, and I like what you were just talking about with David. There's so many examples in the Bible that when you study God's Word, that's how you learn who God is and who, what His character is. You become more at peace and less anxious because you know who He is and that His promises are unfailing and unchanging in this world that's constantly changing his word never changes and his character never changes. And so if you don't study God's word, you can't know the character of God and be able to trust in his promises. Well, the other problem I have is is not only 
do I sometimes forget who God is, but I promote myself. Oh, and yeah, and scripture clearly teaches that I am a depraved sinner. There's none righteous, no, not one. I am afflicted with this sin nature. Even though I've trusted Christ for my salvation, I still have this struggle that somehow still, after all these years of experience, gives me the impre- impression that I can go help God out with this plan in this economy. So that his mercies are new every morning. That's right. And I, I want to point out that Christians do face scarcity and poverty and God promises to meet our needs. That's right. But we caricature God sometimes. And I'm going to use an expression that a pastor friend of ours used one time and I wrote it down. I'll never forget it. He said, God is not a cosmic vending machine. And I thought, isn't that how we treat God and our relationship with him? Lord, I need this. I want this. Give me this, 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 and this. In fact, that can really be emblematic of our prayer life. Oh, uh, and absolutely. Look at Psalm 37. This is, And I'm not going to do many more of these references. I'm not going to cite many more of these references. But Psalm 37, verses 16 and 17. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. There's more going on here than just the economy. This is about our outlook. This is about how we see God. Having a little is having enough. Now, now for Americans, when we start talking about God's abundance and, 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 you know, that we're, we're just about, just about everybody I know, everybody in our sphere of influence is afflicted with this challenge and some handle it better than others. But we know that God is a God of abundance and we live in the land of abundance. We can cite periods in the Old Testament, stories in the Old Testament, where obviously God provided for Adam and Eve, God provided for Joseph in Egypt, through Canaan, etc. For Israel, God provided abundantly and he provides in spite of our disobedience in spite of our hard-heartedness it's tempting to rifle through several of these stories but suffice it to say god does not really promise prosperity if we're faithful he does make some promises to us like in matthew 7 another section of the sermon on the mount this ask seek and knock section that we've talked about before it's in the bible and we conservative christians should not be afraid to talk about that god meets our needs he gives good things to those who ask him but he does not promise us prosperity god is not a cosmic vending machine he does not promise us a perfect life a stress-free life but he does promise in philippians that we will have everything that we need he will hold nothing back from us but it may not be what necessarily we think we need or want, but it will be the right thing for us to grow in His grace, to serve Him, and there will be a peace that surpasses all understanding that comes along with that. Now, that's right. And just to confess publicly, I struggle with wanting to think that the world works, that it works according to me, not according to God. And the, the way I picture that in class for students is I, I write the word God and then an arrow uh, descending from God about two feet long. And then I either write man or a little stick figure 
And then I draw that little stick figure going up above God so that God becomes subject to man rather than man subject to God. And that seems like such a simple thing. And it seems like something that we would never, if we've read scripture for five minutes, we would never be guilty of. And yet we tend to do this. And where where this surfaces, and it surfaces several ways, but it, it surfaces in our critique of God, but it also surfaces with respect to this discussion on the economy and on God meeting our needs, God being a, being a God of abundance. There's a problem that isn't just limited to America. It's a problem throughout the world, but more so here than other places, I believe, and that's greed. Greed among Christians. This selfish and excessive desire for more of something than is needed. And it's this desire to have more than someone else. It comes, it comes with other sins. It, it comes, it's idolatry, it's envy, it's to have, have more to enjoy, more power and status, to have more in, attempt, in an attempt to avoid problems. And this desire to have more can be really good. It can, yes. it can be noble and healthy, but we all struggle with this. And I, I listed, if I may, I, I want to just talk about some very practical ways that I think we can change our view, our Christian view of economics. And I'll tell you what has been on my heart lately. And I know we've talked about this in our home, but I want to say this for the benefit of the listeners. And again, I don't want to be a hypocrite here, so I want to say that I'm, I'm guilty of this. But we tend to prescribe our lives. You know, we tend to order our lives in a way sometimes that denies the gospel, that denies the truth. You know, we don't employ the truth that we know from scripture in our lives. It's almost like we fall for this lie. I mean, I teach at a Christian school and, and you would think after all these years and we're involved in our church and you instruct a ladies Bible study and you're involved in, in facilitating that. And you would think that we would have mastered this by now, and yet we still, there's this tendency to compartmentalize. And, and we've, we've bumped into this in people. It's, it's really easy for us to get disappointed in others and to miss this in our, in our own lives. But there's this tendency to separate, well, there's the Christian life over there. But, but now I'm talking business and I'm, I'm looking at resources and planning and those things. And although we know God is superintending all of this, we tend not to think about him and to really answer that question, is Jesus Christ more important to me than money? Rather poorly, don't we? We do. And you know what I'm thought, I thought of? I think it's, it's the verse in Colossians, but it's talking about how Jesus took on our debt of sin and he nailed it to the cross. And so we are debt-free in terms of, this is God's economy. But not only are we debt-free, we also gained Jesus's righteousness. We're imputed his righteousness. That's God's economy, really. We got so much more. That's right. That's exactly right. And yet, when I look at this, this question, is Jesus Christ more important to me than money? And I say, of course he is. And then I look back at my life and I look at a period, and I love and respect these men, I look at a period where I played golf with the same group every 
Saturday morning at Aliqua Country Club, which is owned by my friend John Rittenauer. And I played with he and Adam Fossilid and Clark Witten and, and others who would kind of rotate in and out in a group of four or five golfers every Saturday at 8.30. And we would we would assemble, oh, I don't know, it depended on the day, but 30 or 35 members in the men's grill for lunch afterwards. And I will tell you that the discussion, and there's nothing wrong with this, but the discussion almost always was about getting ahead financially, about someone's business interest, about even among brothers in Christ, just our day-to-day lives. I can, I can go back to our banks. We were blessed to have been part of uh, three bank startups and tell you that all of the conversation, even during idle time, was focused on the financial implications of what we were doing rather than that encouragement that we're debt-free in Christ that you just described. There's this human tendency to wallow in the mud of the mundane is the way I would say it. Yes. And obsess over, because it seems noble, doesn't it? Now, it does. am I suggesting parents and families just go live irresponsible lives and don't make good decisions and don't work? Of course I'm not. So that's kind of the story of my tendency to focus on those, those very mundane uh, business issues. But I want to talk just for a moment, and I, I've mentioned this before, about our experience as a family with adversity. And I know we're going to talk about more about our family next time, but just briefly, I just want to acknowledge that God used cancer, uh, stage three colon cancer in our lives, in my life, I'm the one who had it, but in our family to change our perspective in a lot of ways. It wasn't wasn't an on-off switch that made everything perfect, but it helped us, I believe, over time, God used that experience and many, many others, but that one in particular, to make his word and these principles in his word about the economy more clear to us. And what, where that surfaced is we became more generous givers of our time, of our resources, of our money. And during that period, God used that adversity to kind of turn that light on for us as a family. Absolutely did. Yeah. We were in the hospital after your surgery. I don't know if you remember. And you were not going back to your previous employment. They, your bank was being purchased, wasn't it? Oh yeah. And they well, told, the, annou- the announcement was made. Then. Yeah, and you didn't have a job, so you had just gone through. <laughs> we haven't even started chemo yet. <laughs> yeah. And so we were going through all of that, and and you know we had to just turn to the Lord and say, okay, this this is what you have for us now. What do you want for our lives? Well, that's going forward? that's right, and and this probably goes in the way too personal category. But I remember the other side of that coin being I had done the math, you know, math by spreadsheet on what the financial implications were for us of of that acquisition, and I thought, wow, I never thought, Lord, you would bless us that way, and it was. Uh, I mean, has the Lord blessed us financially and otherwise in so many ways? Of course, yes. But this was significant. And I remember a nurse bringing in a copy of the newspaper. And there was an article where I was quoted. My friend uh, Richard Burnett was uh, the banking writer for the Sentinel. And I'll tell you the perspective that I had. Reading that article that quotes me on, on the merger and talks about the merger on the first page of the business section of the Orlando Sentinel, those many years ago, 
I remember thinking, wow, I thought this day would be one where we celebrate and here I am in a hospital and what an instant clarifier that is. And now that I've studied scripture and know that you can't serve God in money, what a beautiful, gracious picture and clarifier that was. Oh, and I, I, yeah, I'm, was. I'm stuttering because I want to resist saying stupid things like I would have given all of that money to have walked out of that hospital healthy, you know, without the need to go through those six months of chemo or without the concern that the cancer could return or without the implications of even the surgery. But I want to shift gears uh, just for a moment in kind of a subtle shift. And I want to talk about just some practical ways that I think a Christian can, can apply God's economic principles, this, this God is a God of abundance, but we're using scarce resources. How does, how does all of this and all these scriptures that we've talked about, how do they really come together? And I, what I'm about to say is not comprehensive. I'm going to make six or seven points and I'm going to do it rather quickly. And my list isn't comprehensive, but I hope it's helpful. The first one is one we all struggle with, and that is we are made to work. This notion of, of subduing the earth is something we always talk about, and God's view of work is laid out for us in Scripture, and I'm not going to uh, quote all of those references right now, but we're made to work, and we, we should use time wisely and work hard. Now, what, what does that look like? Does it have to be manual, physical labor? No. Can we employ our skills, as Paul says in Romans 12, where we're to come together and employ our gifts together and each according to his own measure of faith, Paul says, is it possible to do that in, in various ways? Yes, absolutely. But this notion that, that we were guilty of for a long time, and we'll talk more about this next time, but this notion of, oh, I can't wait till I retire so I don't have to work, that is permeates the American worker's way of thinking. It is... It is part of the American way, isn't it? Oh, it is. Yes. And, and, and so you live your whole life configuring it so that one day you won't have to work, which is the very thing you're created for and what tends to happen when we do. And I, I didn't just criticize everyone who's retired. I, there, there are other ways you can work. We can work even in retirement. But this notion of propping my feet up and doing nothing is extra biblical and frustrates people and creates that anxiety that Jesus was talking about sometimes in Matthew 6. Well, and I think that's why you have so many uh, older people who are discontented and, and not, they're not productive and fruitful anymore. And I don't want that to be me, to be no, us. ever. Christians so, should never retire. There's always a ministry. Yeah, should never retire in the sense of putting your feet putting up. Putting your and, feet up, yeah. 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 And, and there's nothing wrong with all those recreational aspirations, uh, you know. Uh, oh, do, no. Do the we, things we you enjoy. We can too. But. En enjoy nice trips and, and the like. But, but life has a purpose, and the purpose is, is to glorify God as we love our neighbor as ourselves, and we've got to find ways to do that. Yes. And we've got some beautiful example of, uh, examples of people in their 80s even, in our church. Oh, who, better. Who, who live yes. lives according to the principle that we're talking about here. Still go on mission trips. So so work hard is, is the first one. We're made to work. Use, use time wisely. All of that is kind of buried there in point number one. Point two, study scripture and pray. We've already talked about that. 
some struggle with, well, what version of the Bible? And I, I just want to mention a few English Standard Version, New International Version, New American Standard Bible, and New King James are among the best of the translations, my, with my favorite being English Standard or, well, actually any of those four would be fine. But studying scripture and praying, and by that I don't mean just the the requisite, uh, I, I did my five minutes or I read a devotional book, but actually studying scripture, and we'll talk more as we go forward about how to actually do that. But that that sounds like it's exogenous to the economy and to God's economy, and it's not. You know, we already talked about David, David's understanding of the law, David's understanding of God's work in the Old Testament, and God's character gave him the ability to repent and to turn from his adulterous, murderous sin and truly trust the God of Scripture. Number three, learn to see God as he is. And that sounds a lot like number two. Well, if I'm reading Scripture, well, yes, but this picture of God, this caricature that we tend to create that we talked about earlier is it becomes problematic in various aspects of our lives. God is not a cosmic vending machine, and we shouldn't caricature him as such. The Word of Faith movement, the prosperity gospel movement, gets this wrong with respect with respect to Scripture. Now, this isn't me looking to pick a fight. This is me saying those movements and the teaching in them are extra biblical. If you're caught up in that, then then by God's grace, please consider you know, who God really is and dispense with, let's try to dispel this notion of God being a cosmic vending machine who, as our faith grows, blesses us more materially, almost in a way that we can apply uh, wealth as a litmus test for how we're doing spiritually. But if you look at at Romans 11, and it's a passage that I I reference a lot, uh, scripture discloses to us the proper view of God that we should have. Paul in particular makes it very clear time and time again, and the rest of scripture does as well. But he says in verse 33 of Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Paul had a very high view of God that we should have. He goes on to say, For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Now, even as I just read that, my mind was wondering, and I'm thinking, okay, from him, through him, to him, I've read it a thousand times. I've even read it on this podcast many episodes ago. Everybody knows that from him, through him, and to him are all things. But if we really lived that way, it would change our lives and our view of God's economy. So learning to see God as he is, not the caricature that we we want him to be, not even sometimes that not the depiction of of a pastor or the writer of a book. And, and there's some really good pastors and really good writers out there. I don't want to disparage them, but going to scripture and learning how to study scripture and seeing God as he is in scripture is critical. A fourth item is is really where it really becomes practical and difficult, and that is no your weaknesses. Know your own tendencies and know what you talk about or think about most. Most of us fail this test. Most of us think about contingency plans. If you're a professional, you think about 
I've planned my retirement and I want my plan to come together. You design your life. All of us can design our lives to avoid risk. We think risk mitigation and godliness go together and there's nothing wrong with risk mitigation, but you can live your life obsessed with it and fail to live life and live it abundantly and live it the way God designed it. So number five then is design your life such that your biblical priorities inform your life fully. Don't fall into the trap. Now listen to this of the saying doing paradox. In other words, make it clear who you are in Christ. Know that from your study of scripture and then inform your life. Let that inform your life on how you live so that you don't, we don't find ourselves guilty of saying one thing and doing another. Now, as long as we're on this earth, this fallen earth, and we're, we're dirty, rotten, depraved sinners, we're going to have that tendency to grab life by the throat, say one thing and do another. But don't you think as we grow in grace that we begin to walk out the things that we say in our lives more effectively? And shouldn't that be an aspiration as we look at God's economy? Oh, yeah. And I think that's part of sanctification and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, sanctification is a uh, Presbyterian word for <laughs> for spiritual growth, growing yes. in God's grace, yes. perseverance of the saints, some denominations call it, but it's it's spiritual growth. It's growing, it's growing in Christ. Right. Yep. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. I think your conscience becomes more in tune with the Holy Spirit as you as you grow in grace and know more about who God is and his character. And I'll tell you a place where, where this hits me between the eyes every year in class and often throughout the year. But students, and particularly the ones I hang out with, 11th and 12th grade students, see right through us in this regard, this saying and oh, doing Oh, they paradox. absolutely do. Yes. Which is good. It's healthy. It, it really is. I mean, some, <laughs> sometimes we think, oh, they don't know that I... Or sometimes they even see things in the administration or or in in the the way we design things. You know, they through us as parents. I mean, they, they teenagers can point out hypocrisy faster than <laughs> just about any group. It's true, and and we ought to be sensitive to that as parents yes. because, and we should admit it. You know, we should we should acknowledge that. I'm going to talk about that. We, yeah, we, we are we are sinners and need. I mean, we don't have to identify all of our sins to our children, but. But, no, it, but it they, is important to be candid. And they learn, they learn repentance and forgiveness through us in the home. That's where they should be learning about repentance and forgiveness. Yeah. You know, just a couple of other things as we kind of wrap this topic up, I would encourage everyone, and this is, this is kind of like not an extra point here, but point six is use this reminder in this episode to reset our awareness, reset your awareness. This, this is not something to despair over. If you're sitting uh, and listening to this and you say, wow, I don't do any of this stuff very well. Well, welcome aboard. You're, you're, you're part of, you're part of a club that includes all of us. And if we can use this as a reminder to turn, to repent, to begin to learn who God is, who the person of Jesus Christ is, the perfect demonstration of his love for us, who's fully God, truly God, and begin to change this, that overcome this saying, doing paradox, beginning to walk by faith and, 
and, and live a generous giving life, then it's not too late. Uh, and that's really the point, point six. Point seven is don't fall for the grass is greener. This concept, and we, uh, I, I was blessed to have worked with some really smart people over the years, and I know you were too. And we referenced this several ways, this grass is greener theory. There's always the perception that, in fact, we all do this to each other. We kind of clean up our lives and social media does this where, you know, everybody presents, puts their best foot forward in those settings. Even socially, we do so. We want the appearance of having it together when, in fact, what would really benefit each other is if we talked about our struggles and confessed our sins and talked about our reliance on Christ and his finished work. Amen. And I find that so many times that's true, unfortunately, in churches, that people feel even more like they have to pretend like everything is good and fine. We're, we're among the worst. The worst. We and can, we should be the ones we, we, coming it, alongside each other, building each other up, helping each other, praying together. Evangelical Christians in the church can be some of the most destructive, heartless Yes. Hurtful people. And if we don't and employ. It breaks your heart. You know, I came into adulthood, and bless your heart for having to put up with this, but I came into adulthood not understanding conflict resolution, and, and I had to, had to learn that and, and still have to work on it. But that gives us that, oh, I made a mistake, or somebody else did, or there was a conflict, gives us an opportunity to recover graciously and lovingly. And it's not something to be avoided. And I, I see in the church, and I'm not talking just about our own, I'm talking about even among the, the students and their families yeah. and the church at large with right. all of our friends, there's this tendency to brush aside the conflict, bury it, tamp it down, don't address it, just just go order your life differently so that you don't bump into that conflict again. And yeah. I'm, I'm not suggesting we should go look for it, but there's a there's a balance there, some nuance there, and I think it's just one of the things that we ought to be aware of as we look at God's economy and how he, how his design for us. This grass is greener thing can, I mentioned the country club and that, that life that I lived, and there's nothing wrong with playing golf, but that perspective, that unhealthy perspective that uh, I, w- I was certainly a, a part of will also inform you that the, with respect to the grass is greener, that if you only had one more or it's funny it's never enough and the most wealthy people that in my orbit seem to struggle most with that yes and there's a paradox there isn't there well and i can't remember where it is but there's actually a verse in the bible that talks about that which you worship so to speak you will become a slave to yes exactly it is it is you can see that so clearly in some of those people yeah it's harder almost to be wealthy yeah and my my last uh, bit of advice and i if i did the math right it's point eight i think but uh, learn to rest in god's character and promises even though we do it imperfectly focus on on who he is and how he his design for this world and the story the big narrative of human history is all about the cross and God's design for us in the cross. As we as we study the sinfulness of man, we have to quickly add, but God provided a way, redeemed us, paid for our sin, conquered sin and death on our behalf. And that 
payment, that justification is available to us by faith, by simply trusting in him. What a beautiful, beautiful promise that is. So we've talked today about the economy in a practical way for Christians, about God's economy, and we kind of rambled through a number of scriptures. We talked briefly about greed. It really amounts to, and I believe I said this earlier, it amounts to idolatry. Most of us would say, oh my goodness, how could the church at Rome worship all those idols? And yet we have our favorites. We just don't call them idols. They, they are in fact idols. There, there are examples of greed throughout history. This is counterintuitive biblical application today, and I hope it's been helpful. Thank you for being with us, Mrs. Warren. Oh, I'm glad to be. It is always good to have your perspective. And for those of you who have the opportunity, come back next week and you'll get to hear. We're going to do that episode in an interview format. And I think you'll really enjoy hearing Connie's perspective. But thank you for listening. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. Contact us through the website, johnwarrenmedia.com. Use the uh, contact form. You can email me at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. We'd love to hear what is on your mind, especially after this very personal, practical episode involving God's economy. So it's good to be with you, and we look forward to being with you again next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.